This is WMNF Tampa. True Talk is a pre-recorded show. Morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host Samar Jarrah. I'm so happy to be back in the studio. It's a skeleton. Uh, 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 WMNF, but uh, thank God we are still on the air and we have the wonderful volunteers. And I want to thank Frank for being here today to help me uh, run this uh, show today. Ahmed is not with me here. I'm the only person in the studio and two more people in the station only. Uh, This is a live show, so you can always send your comments to dj at wmnf.org. And uh, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to f- uh, take phone calls, but you can always uh, try 813-239-9663. I'm going to be talking uh, to Professor Rashid Khalidi. Uh, he is an American-Palestinian born in the U.S. Uh, when his father was working at the United Nations. And then he lived in parts of the Arab world. And uh, during uh, the Civil War, he was living in Lebanon. But we're going to be talking uh, with him about his amazing book. I just finished reading it yesterday. It's called The Hundred Years War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance, 1917 to 2017. Fascinating book, has a lot of things that I thought, you know, I know a lot, but obviously I don't, uh, about the League of Nations, about the Balfour Declaration, about the U.S. involvement in this uh, conflict, and maybe how we can uh, solve it. So stay tuned, uh, enjoy this uh, interview with Dr. Uh, Rashid Khalidi. And uh, listen uh, to this song and we're going to be right back. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. And remember, I am in the studio and this is a live show. Oh, my God. 
welcome back to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. And as promised, uh, told you, we're going to be having a lovely uh, live interview with Professor Rashid uh, Khalidi. He is the author of seven books, uh, among them Palestinian Identity, Brokers of Deceit, The Iron Cage. His writings uh, has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, and many academic journals. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern, Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, New York, and he is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. Today, we're going to be talking about a fascinating book. I finished uh, reading it last night, uh, and it's called The Hundred Years War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance 1917-2017 if you have any questions please send them to dj at wmnf.org good morning uh, professor khalidi i need to put professor khalidi on the air good morning professor khalidi i hope you were listening to the introduction I was, I oh, was, yes, good very, morning. Good morning, good to have you. Uh, it's an honor, actually. I just finished reading your book uh, yesterday and I have not stopped thinking about it. I thought I know a lot uh, as a Palestinian myself and somebody who read three of your books when I was doing my master's at USF. But obviously, um, education never ends and never stops. I want to start by asking you, why did you write this book? Because as I just told you, I read three of yours and they're different and I read them in the context of uh, studying uh, for my master's and trying to read more of academic books. So why did you write this book and it's your seventh or eighth? I wrote it, um, I wrote it at the urging, among others, of my son, who said to me that um, it, 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 I had written enough academic books. I mean, the books that you read and the books that you used for your your MA um, probably were among those books that were mainly written for specialists, for historians, um, for people who are knowledgeable about the topic. And what he said to me was, it's time for you to write something that is um, accessible to readers who are not experts or not academics. And it's time for you to include some of the stories that you tell us, uh, some of the family stories that you tell us, or some of the things that, that you yourself have experienced, and to use a different voice. So I tried to do that. I mean, I had other people urging me to do it. And um, so it is, you're right, it is a very different, it's a different kind of book than anything I've written before. I think what I liked is the fact that you have narrated some of your own family history, which uh, goes back to uh, Jerusalem in particular. And uh, I really had no idea that your uncle was the first one to correspond with, the, with Theodore Herzl. Maybe you were going to be talking. My, my great, great uncle. Great, great <laughs> uncle, yeah. <laughs> yes, you're very young, sorry. The uncle of my grandfather. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Okay. okay, so but I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to go back to the uh, introduction because I think really the whole juice of the book and the jumping board of the book comes in the introduction. But I'm going to go back to it later on. This is a long uh, book and uh, it's extensive and has so many issues. There is no way we can cover it all. So maybe what you can do to help our listeners to uh, to understand is if you could like in five minutes summarize the the six. Uh, wars that were uh, launched on Palestine, and then I'm going to be asking specific questions. Sure, um, I, I tried to I tried to approach this with an American reader in mind, 
or European American or European Vietnamese, and with the idea that they have, the ideas that they have that I think are entirely false about Palestine. Most of them think of this as a struggle at best between two peoples, both of which have some rights in the land and which are more or less equals. And most people would then favor the Israelis because of the biblical connection. I try and show in this book that this is a completely incorrect view. Yes, there are two peoples, of course, but they're not on a basis of equality. First of all, because this is, a, this is and always was a colonial struggle in which first the Zionist movement and then later the state of Israel were fully supported by the greatest power of the age, whether that was Great Britain during the era of colonialism through World War II, or whether that was the United States or other other great powers like Britain, France, and the Soviet Union at different times since World War II. So that's the first thing I try and show. This was not this is not just a struggle between two peoples. This is a struggle to implant um, an entirely new group of mainly Europeans uh, who have a claim, obviously, in their eyes to this land, and to supplant, replace. Um, the indigenous population, which of course has a natural right of self-determination according to the, the, the United Nations Charter, even according to the Covenant of the League of Nations, um, back in, back in, right after World War One. So that's the, that's the second thing I'm trying to show, that this is a struggle to implant what described itself as a settler colonial movement. Um, when you say, you know, Zionism is a settler colonial movement, people get up in arms. Well, early Zionists, Herzl himself, Zev Jabotinsky, David Ben-Gurion, had no qualms about saying, yes, we are coming here to settle. We, we have a claim here. This is our ancestral homeland, they would argue. But, um, yes, of course, we're here coming as Europeans to bring progress to this backwards country. The people who are here don't have rights. We're the only ones who have rights. But um, we're being backed by a colonial power. We are, uh, we are a colonial movement. Um, and the, the, the major institutions um, of the Zionist movement describe themselves as colonial. Uh, mm -hmm. The Jewish Colonization Agency was the, the funding agency that bought up uh, the very small proportion of land of Palestine, about 5 or 6%, that the Zionist movement managed to purchase before 1948. So I described six wars, six phases of this uh, what was really an assault on the Palestinians to deprive them of their rights and to replace them with another person, uh, another people. The first of which uh, started with the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which basically declared that the Palestinians don't exist as a people, and the only people in Palestine with national rights is the Jewish people. And that war was carried out by the British Army, mainly uh, in the late 1930s, when they crushed a Palestinian revolt. The second phase. Uh, started with the, the partition resolution, which gave most of a country that was inhabited primarily by Arabs to a Jewish minority, and uh, which was carried out in that case mainly uh, by first Zionist militias and then after the establishment of the State of Israel on May 15, 1948, by the Israeli army, but with the indispensable support of both the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, that war could not have been waged without the declaration of war that the United States and the Soviet Union pushed through uh, the United Nations General Assembly in November 1947. Uh, I then talk about several other phases, the uh, 1967 war, uh, I talk about the 1982 war, and I talk about how both of those were not just Israeli wars, mm -hmm. or Israeli wars with Arab states in the case of 1967, or an Israeli invasion of Lebanon in the case of 1982. They were collaborations between the United States and Israel, where the Israeli leaders went to Washington, asked for permission 
told the Americans they were going to go ahead, told the United States they were going to go ahead. In the case of 1967, uh, the head of the Mossad goes and talks to Secretary, Secretary of Defense McNamara, talks to the president. In the case of 1982, Defense Minister Sharon goes to Washington, talks to Secretary of State Hagan. They get a green light. So these are American-Israeli uh, 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 declarations of war, I argue. And I, I talk then about um, the uh, 1993 Oslo Accords uh, as, as another declaration of war. And I talk about the current situation leading up to the Trump plan as the sixth of these declarations of war on the Palestinians. Let me just remind our listeners that this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. You can follow this conversation on Twitter uh, from my feed, uh, Samar Di Jarrah. We are also on Facebook slash uh, True Talk and we're talking to Professor Rashid Khalidi, the Hundred Years War on uh, Palestine. I want to go to the introduction, Professor, and I'm going to read uh, from uh, page 12. Uh, and uh, this is Jabotensky, and he wrote in 1923, and you say, that he is one of the most honest, uh, probably Zionist, who really wrote about what is in plan for Palestine. And here I am quoting from uh, the book what Jabotensky wrote. Uh, he's one of the uh, leading Zionist thinkers of the time. And now, every native population in the world resists colonists as long as it has the slightest hope of being able to rid itself of the danger of being colonized. That is what the Arabs in Palestine are doing and what they will persist in doing as long as there remains a solitary spark of hope that they will be able to prevent the transformation of Palestine into the land of Israel. Later, he said Zionist colonization can proceed and develop only under the protection of a power that is independent of the native population. Behind an iron wall, which the native population cannot breach. I think this is the jumping board of your book. Since that day, and actually since the first war in 1917, the Zionist movement realized that it needed a superpower to achieve its uh, colonial project. Uh, can you elaborate on that and who they started uh, with? Absolutely. Uh, Jabotinsky is not just any old Zionist leader. He is the intellectual father and the founder of the current of what's called revisionist Zionism, to which belonged uh, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Ariel Sharon, and to which belongs uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, four of the most important prime ministers of Israel, are followers of Jabotinsky. So Jabotinsky is an extremely important figure in the history of Zionism. Um, his, his ideas and his inspiration have uh, uh, guided Israeli governments at least since Begin became prime minister in 1977. Um, and I think this is uh, the, the point that you, the, the second of the quotes that you read is really important because it highlights the fact that this is not an independent movement that's acting on its own. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that could not have achieved what it has achieved without the support of an external power. And this was something that was realized from the very beginning. This is why Herzl, Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern political Zionism, goes around the chanceries of Europe, trying to get the support of France, of Germany, of the Ottoman Empire. It's why his successor, Chaim Weizmann, who later becomes the first president of Israel, um, spent so much effort and time uh, gaining the support of Great Britain for the Balfour Declaration. And it's why Ben-Gurion and his colleagues in the 30s and 40s 
uh, expend enormous effort, in fact, even before the 30s and 40s, in developing support for Zionism in the United States and also at the same time in the Soviet Union. And it all pays off at different times, this solicitation of support by a great power um, to make possible the, the achievement of Zionist aims and, and later on to make possible the successes of the state of Israel. It doesn't fight the wars that it fights with its own weapons. It fights these wars with, in the case of the 1948 war, American and Soviet weapons, in the case of the 1956 and 67 wars with French and British weapons, and since then, uh, mainly with American weapons. So that, that external support is absolutely crucial um, to the in- implantation of the Zionist project in Palestine and to the success later on of the state of Israel. Uh- I just finished reading a book uh, called All the Real Indians Died of uh, Professor and they talk about erasure and the fact that how uh, history when written and rewritten in the US uh, they erased the Native Americans and created myths and I think it somehow the whole time that I was reading your book that book came to mind you mentioned Balfour Declaration and the 1922 League of Nations mandate that they totally erased the Palestinians. Can you elaborate on that? Right. This is an important part of any colonial settler. To physically, as much as possible, physically erase the indigenous population, to um, eliminate uh, the names as much as possible and and substitute um, names drawn from the the tree. Um, And to try to rewrite history so that it becomes instead of a history of a struggle between an indigenous people uh, and and a colonizer, a struggle of a triumphant creation of an entirely new entity. So that's the way American history is written. Uh, The Native Americans are a footnote, um, just as slavery is a footnote. Um, We we pontificate about our, our democracy in the United States, and we talk, think of, of, of the Senate and the House meeting in the Capitol. The Capitol is a building built by slave labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the White House is a building built by slave labor. The lands on which these, these monuments are, are established uh, originally belong to Native Americans. And we, we, we erase, as you say, um, that history. Uh, similarly, Zionism has done the same thing. There was a commission that was established right after 1948 war, right after the establishment of the state, to rename places. These are places that had Arab names. These are places that people had lived in for centuries or millennia. Um, they, were, they were renamed. Every mountain, every river, uh, every locality uh, got a new name. Uh, and to some extent, we've done the same thing in this country in, or in Australia or in New Zealand or in Canada. Um, not every name has been changed, obviously, here or there, uh, whether in, in Israel or in, or in the United States. But uh, you know, we have names drawn from colonial history. New York, New Jersey. This is not Native American names. Those are names drawn from Great Britain, whence most of the colonists originally came. So this process of erasure is central to what uh, a colonizing project does. So how did they do it with the Balfour Declaration and the League of Nations mandate? How did they exactly do it? Well, here you're talking about legal erasure. Um, you're talking about Talking, you're talking about Great Britain issuing a statement in November of 1917 at the height of World War I in which it says that Palestine is a country uh, in which Britain looks to establishing what it called a Jewish national home um, and basically said that for the Jewish people 
and, and, and thereby, uh, uh, while at the same time not mentioning the Palestinians, who are the 95% of the population. Uh, and uh, the rest of the declaration says the non-Jewish communities would get civil and religious rights. Well, that, what that declaration says is there is one people with national rights in Palestine. That's the Jewish people. And therefore, there's one people with rights, with political rights. And the rest of the population, the overwhelming majority, doesn't exist as a national entity, has no national rights, and in fact has no political rights. It specifically says they are to have civil and religious rights. Uh, the 1922 mandate for Palestine that the League of Nations gives to Britain uh, repeats the wording of the Balfour Declaration in its preamble and then amplifies in several of its main uh, how this Jewish national home is to be established. And again, never mentions the Palestinians. The overwhelming majority of the population that Britain is getting a mandate to govern don't have any rights, whereas the tiny minority, which Britain is favoring, get attention, get lavish attention uh, in the mandate as to how they're supposed to be established in the land, as to how they're supposed to have governmental institutions, as to how uh, they're to be given this and that assistance by the magnitude power. So um, the Palestinians are, in effect, erased mm -hmm. uh, in this document. They're also erased in other documents. The famous uh, uh, November 1967 Security Council Resolution 242, which was supposed to be the basis for peace uh, after the 1967 war, also doesn't mention the Palestinians. They are erased in that document. There's no mention of Palestinian rights, of the Palestinian state, uh, the Palestinians, the only mention of them is indirect and, and without mentioning their name, talking about a just resolution of the refugee problem. They don't even deign to say which refugees in the two I want to talk about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine because whenever, Professor, we have, uh, and I mean by we as Palestinians, have a debate with uh, somebody on the other side, uh, not necessarily Jewish, but uh, pro-Israel would say you lost the war in 1948 and uh, Israel had to do what it had to do because uh, of the uh, Arab armies that uh, marched into Israel. You refused the partition plan. But in your book you say that uh, throughout, maybe from 1917 till the establishment of the State of Israel, Britain was a vicious uh, power of uh, killing the Palestinians and stifling the resistance that started with your great-great-uncle's letter to Theodore Herzl. Can you address that part in particular and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that was happening under the auspices of the British? Right. Um, well, what the British did was particularly important because when the Palestinians finally had had enough, of being treated as second-class citizens, even though they were a majority in their own country. And they rose up against British rule uh, starting in 1936. Uh, the British brought in a, a huge military force, over 100,000 soldiers. At that time, there were about 300,000 adult male Palestinian Arabs in the country. So there was one soldier or policeman uh, for every uh, three Palestinian um, adult males. Uh, a huge force, when you think about it. Um, and they used all kinds of means. They, obviously, they brought in the Royal Air Force, they brought in artillery, uh, tanks, and so on. Um, and they killed, wounded, uh, exiled, or imprisoned about one in ten Palestinian Arab males. Um, so they completely crushed uh, the resistance to the Palestinians. And they did this in, in a variety of particularly cruel manners. People were executed for the possession, and some are summarily executed for the possession of one bullet, uh, for example. Um, uh, homes were demolished on suspicion of terrorism. 
many of these many, uh, uh, wounded uh, fighters captured on the battlefield were simply shot um, in many cases. Uh, uh, raids were carried out in which people's food was destroyed, their homes were, were damaged, their, their clothing was, was ruined. Um, and as punitive measures, um, a man named Lord Wingate established what were called night squads to carry out raids on villages that were suspected of harboring rebels. And of course, most villages, according to the British, the chief of the imperial general staff wrote a memo which he said everybody supports this rebellion. So any village could have this happen to them. These night squads, which were composed of members of Zionist militias that Wingate and other British officers were training, would go into these villages and blow up houses and kill people. Um, this method finally suppressed the rebellion by 1939, um, but it broke the back of Palestinian resistance. And it made possible what happened in 1947 after the partition resolution was passed by the United Nations, giving most of Palestine to, this, to the minority, the Jewish population, for a Jewish state. Um, and by uh, the early spring of 1948, uh, before the State of Israel was established, before the British Army left, before any Arab army had entered into Palestine, um, these militias were already on the offensive, and they had taken by May 15th, by the date on which the State of Israel is established and the British finally left, um, they had taken uh, all three, three of the, the, the three most important urban centers of Palestinian life. They had taken Jaffa, uh, they had taken Haifa, and they had taken uh, the Arab uh, uh, districts of West Jerusalem, expelling uh, over 150,000 uh, city dwellers. Uh, in other words, the, the urban population of Palestine was ethnically cleansed before the state of Israel even came into being mm -hmm. and before any Arab army had come in to the country. There had, by the time uh, the actual war between the Arab states and Israel began, Israel had forced 300,000 people, about 150,000 village dwellers and 150,000 urbanites from their homes, had emptied those areas of Arab population and had taken areas not only that were allotted to the Jewish state under partition, areas like Jaffa and areas to the west of Jerusalem that were supposed to be part of an Arab state that was never allowed to come into being. And that was the beginning of a process of ethnic cleansing. The Arab armies then enter on May 15th to attempt to stop, stem this, this hemorrhage. Um, they fail. Uh, the Israeli army in the end uh, proves to be much stronger than the Arab armies combined. Um, and I go into some of the reasons for that in the book. But uh, in that process, another 400,000. Palestinians are driven from their homes um, in places like Lidda and Ramli, uh, in villages in Galilee, in areas all over the country. People are either forced out at, at gunpoint or a few people are, are massacred in order to force people to leave or villages are bombarded or scare tactics are used, um, whispering campaigns, propaganda, and people are, are scared and for their lives and they, they have no defense and they leave. Uh, so a majority of Palestine's 1.3 million Arabs are driven from their homes uh, and then later on not allowed to return uh, as part of this, uh, this process of ethnic cleansing, which starts before the state of Israel is established, while the British army is still there, and before any Arab army has crossed into Palestine.
If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. We are live in the studio and we are talking to Professor Rashid Khalidi, a Palestinian-American professor. He is the author of The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. And if you have any questions, please send them to dj at wmnf.org. We are live on Facebook, on the WMNF different channels, as well as True Talk. And on Twitter, I want to move, uh, Professor, to 1956-1967 when the U.S. became involved. In 1956, uh, the U.S. kind of uh, stopped uh, uh, Israel, uh, Britain and France, uh, the attack on Egypt. However, in 1967, things have changed dramatically. Britain is no longer the superpower Jabotinsky was looking for. Now it is replaced by one of the most powerful superpowers on the face of Earth. Can you tell us how this shift happened and why the U.S. is so bent on launching wars on the Palestinians? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated story because the Zionist movement relied entirely on Britain for the first couple of decades uh, 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 during the, 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 the Palestine mandate of the League of Nations. But by the time World War II comes around, um, in, in the lead-up to war, the British realized that they have a problem on their head. They're about to have to fight Germany and, and Italy. And that is likely going to major arena of the war. The British are going to have to fight in a region inhabited by Arabs with an army, an Indian army, which has a huge Muslim contingent. Mm-hmm. And Britain has alienated Arabs and Muslims and many other people in the Third World by their brutal suppression. And so you, I, I bring up internal British government documents talking about the fact that this is an Indian problem. This is a problem of the British Empire in India. This is a this is a strategic problem. We are supporting the Zionists. We're crushing the Palestinians. We are we are we are uh, uh, blackening our name in this part of the world where we are going to fight and where we have armies: Egyptian army, the Iraqi army, the, and, and most importantly, the British Indian army. Uh, who are alienated from us and we're going to need um, in this war that's coming with, with Germany and with and with Italy. And so Britain changes course. Uh, they issue what is called the White Paper of 1939 in which they limit Jewish immigration uh, and they take other measures, which from the point of view of the Zionists, but um, the leadership of the Zionist movement had taken to heart uh, Jabotinsky's injunction to um, find an iron wall. And they had been working very carefully and very intelligently on finding alternative sponsors, as it were, for their project, uh, both in the United States and in the Soviet Union, such that when um, the break with the British comes uh, after the White Paper, um, they have the support uh, already of Washington and and later on of Moscow. Uh, And this is crucial. Uh, Britain has, has... won the war, but sort of lost, in a certain sense, its primacy to the United States. The United States and the Soviet Union are the new superpowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Zionist movement had intelligently foreseen that um, and had, had planned for that. Um, and the planning goes way back. It turns out that people like David Ben-Gurion, who becomes the first prime minister of Israel, and Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, who becomes, I think, the second president of the state of Israel, had been working assiduously in the United States way back during World War One to build up support uh, among the Jewish community and among uh, American politicians uh, for the Zionist project. And this all comes to fruition after World War II. Um, later on, 
um, during uh, the 50s. Israel reestablishes relations with Britain. Uh, it establishes very good relations also with France. France is the colonial power, trying to maintain its colonial possessions in the Middle East, in Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco. And it's opposed to Arab nationalism. And then Israel plays on that. It, it, the Israeli government uh, uh, tells the French, we can help you against uh, the Egyptian nationalists who are supporting rebels in your, in your territories. They say the same thing to the British, and the British come around after being alienated from Zionism. The British come around, and both of these powers support the Suez War, which is an attack by Britain, France, and Israel uh, on Egypt in, 19, in October 1956. Um, the Israelis make a mistake there, because getting the support of Britain and France enables them to win the war, but they sort of lose politically, mm -hmm. because the United States and the Soviet Union come down like a ton of bricks on the British and the French. They say this is a colonial uh, war designed to maintain illegitimate uh, 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 things like like control of Egypt by Britain and France, control of the Suez Canal by Britain and France, control of Egypt's government and its wealth, and neither, neither superpower uh, goes along with this. And so they force they force the British and the French to leave Egypt, and they also force the Israelis to withdraw from the territories that they occupied, which included the Gaza Strip and the, and, and the, and the uh, Sinai Peninsula. Um, and the Israelis learned that lesson. Uh, they never again go to war without taking the permission and getting the support. Of a superpower. So how uh, uh, resolution 242 that the PLO and so many Arab countries and the international uh, community always uh, or used to stress on the Palestinians to accept it. However, when you dissect it and you look at it in your book, uh, you think it was a sanction uh, and another erasure of the Palestinians. Could you just m elaborate a little bit uh, on that? Because sure. that was a request actually coming to me from the Arab world uh, because they were kind of surprised when I talked about it uh, in the past few yeah. days. Uh, well, 242 is a very important um, turning point because with 242, what, what Israel and the United States managed to do is to shift the conversation until... Until the June War of 1967, uh, the discussion had been on uh, uh, Palestine in 1947, uh, the rights of the Palestinians and the rights of Israel, um, the return of refugees who had been driven out in 1948, um, and all of these questions are swept under the rug. But 242 is just about dealing with the consequences of the 1967 war. Israel occupied territory of Egypt, Syria, and the areas of the Bank and Gaza that were administered by Egypt and, and by Jordan and Egypt, respectively. And 242 simply deals with the consequences of 67. It sweeps under the rug things that the United Nations had urged, like return of refugees. There's a resolution of the General Assembly in December 1948, which calls for the return and the compensation of all ref Palestinian refugees. Um, it sweeps under the rug the rights of the Palestinians to have a state in their homeland, which uh, uh, the partition resolution uh, called for. Um, no, the partition resolution of November 1947 had called for, and so on. So 242 is important in that regard, and it's important in another regard because, as, as, as I mentioned, it doesn't mention the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The Palestine question, the issue of Palestinian rights, the return of Palestinian refugees, none of this, none of this finds a place in 242. Uh, 242 simply talks about an exchange of land for peace, but it does so in a way particularly favorable to Israel, because Israel is not obliged immediately to withdraw in exchange for peace or in exchange for anything. 
Israel is unable uh, by 242 to remain as it has since 1967. We're now, uh, in, uh, June has passed. We've now had 53 years of Israeli occupation uh, of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and occupied Arab East Jerusalem, and the Syrian Golan Heights. Um, and the United Nations hasn't done a thing about it, nor has any other, nor has anybody else. So uh, 242 was basically a license for Israel to occupy and colonize. Um, in practice, that's what it is amounted to. Um, and it seems to me a completely unsuitable basis for a settlement if the settlement has to involve things like uh, a just resolution of the Palestine question and and an ending to a military occupation under which people have suffered for going on three generations now. In your book, Professor, you are quite uh, critical of the PLO uh, and mm-hmm. the uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, especially during the Oslo Agreement, uh, but uh, even before that. And I think one of the most important things that you mentioned Um, how many professors like yourself and Edward Said and Abu Lughod, a lot of people who lived in the U.S. tried for the past maybe 20 to 30, if not more, 40 years to try to convince the, um, the resistance and the PLO representatives of the Palestinians the importance of America, uh, not America, the administration and diplomatically only, but the people. Why Why they never saw that the way the Zionists, like you said, from the days of before the establishment of the State of Israel? I think even Golda Meir was living in the U.S. trying to get uh, support uh, for that uh, colonial Golda, project. Golda Meir was born in Milwaukee. She's an American. She was an American originally before she emigrated to Palestine. Um, well, I mean, there are many reasons. Uh, first of all, I, I, I am very critical uh, of not just the PLO, but earlier Palestinian leaderships as well. Even though I understand, and I try and explain, the very difficult uphill struggle that they were having to wage. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't say that it was an easy task to deal with the issues that they had to deal with, whether in the 20s and the 30s or uh, the PLO leadership in the 60s and the 70s and afterwards. However, I, I do say that I think they didn't have an understanding of the global Uh, situation that was anything like on the level of the understanding of the Zionist movement. And that's understandable, given the fact that most Zionist leaders were themselves originally Europeans and Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, David Ben-Gurion comes to Palestine um, from the Russian Empire. Others come from the Habsburg Empire. Others come from the United States or other parts of Europe. So they are Europeans and Americans. They know the societies from which they originally come. Uh, and they come to serve the Zionist movement, they come to be leaders of the Zionist movement, but they speak English, French, and German, and Russian as, na- as their native tongue, even as they come to speak Hebrew as, the, as a national language. So for them, understanding the United States, or understanding Britain or France or whatever, comes naturally, comes easily. Um, in many cases, they are citizens of the countries we're talking about. Crane Weizmann was a British subject. He, was a, he, was a Brit- he, was, he had been nationalized as a British subject. So when he talked to Lord Balfour or he talked to David Lloyd George, he was talking to him as a fellow Brit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bogo de Meyer could talk in English uh, to Americans, in American, in you know, Midwestern accented English to American politicians and so on and so forth. Palestinians did not have that advantage uh, and still don't. I mean, it's changing now. But, till this now? Uh, that till now? Well, I think it's now changing. I think you now have people... Uh, the, the generation of Palestinian yeah. Americans who were born and grew up in the United States, and they're as American as anybody else, and they understand how the system works here. Um, 
and they understand how to address Americans, and they understand the American system of government and the Constitution. But it's still, but it's still not the uh, the representatives like the Palestinian Authority. It's still people on their own and organizations like BDS, uh, although it is centered in the um, inside the, the the state of Israel and Palestine. But it is still individual efforts, not. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And and the, and I think that the PLO and the PA and Palestinian official representatives are still got a very long way to go before they understand the importance of speaking directly to Americans or for that matter of speaking directly to Israelis and, uh, and, and speaking to them in a way that's understandable, putting forward a Palestinian position that people can understand and support. Um, we don't understand the degree to which this is a global issue. And mm-hmm. that you have to uh, be able to address those global audiences in a language they will understand. I hope now Zionist with movement, the Zionist movement never had a problem with that. No, and I hope now with Black Lives Matter and all that is happening now in the U.S., they can realize how it is important to create alliances. And you do mention in the book that we need to pay attention to China, to India, to third world countries, to Latin America, and everybody we can uh, talk to. But I really want you to spend a few minutes on Oslo, uh, because mm-hmm. some people really think in the West that this was the most brilliant thing that ever happened to the Palestinians. Yet to me, I think it is another Nakba and another Naksa that happened. Could you tell us why it's, it's, you see it in such a negative uh, view? Well, um, the, the accords uh, of, uh, of 1993 that were signed on the White House lawn in the presence of President Clinton and Israeli Prime Minister Rabin and, yes, and PLO leader yes, Arafat um, were the result of a whole series of negotiations. Uh, in my book, I, I go into some depth in, in, in talking about this, and I've actually written another book about it. Um, and I show that the ceiling for what the Palestinians would be allowed to get had been established long before the Oslo Accords were signed on the, on the White House lawn in September 1983. They had been set by agreement between the United States, Israel, and Egypt Uh, back at the time of the Camp David Accords of 1978 uh, and the uh, uh, Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty of 1979 that followed. At that time, Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Begin managed to impose on the Egyptians, on the Americans, his understanding of what was acceptable. And what was acceptable was that Israel had the right to settle and colonize any part of the occupied territories that it choose, chose uh, to, to do that in. And that the Palestinians were to have no uh, national uh, or political Uh, rights or existence. There was to be no Palestinian state, there was to be no Palestinian sovereignty. The maximum uh, that the Palestinians were to be allowed was autonomy. And this was embodied in a series of uh, formal international agreements between these countries. And so the United States has basically conceded to Israel long before Oslo in 1978-79 the limitations that were later on imposed on the negotiating process. Uh, I was involved as an advisor to the Palestinian delegation in the negotiations that preceded the Oslo negotiations. These are the ones that uh, emerged from the Madrid Peace Conference of 1991 Mm -hmm. and that continued in Washington at the State Department uh, during 1992 and 1993 until the summer of 1993. And in those negotiations, what we learned 
was that the parameters that had been laid down in 1978, whereby the Palestinians could not have a state, could not have self-determination, could not have sovereignty, could not have control over Jerusalem, could not have control over water or airspace or entry and exit or the population register or many other things. The settlement would be that Israeli colonization was, was absolutely allowed and could not be limited. We found out those limits and we refused to go along. The PLO leadership, um, unfortunately, failed to understand this, sent unqualified negotiators to Oslo uh, behind the backs of the people who were negotiating in Washington and negotiated the Oslo Accords, which enshrined the things that I'm talking about, essentially enshrined the parameters that Begin had imposed uh, in 1978-79. So when one sees an outcome decades after the 1993 Oslo Accords, whereby there is no Palestinian state, whereby Israeli settlement has metastasized, such that there are now 600-something thousand, 650,000 mm -hmm. Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank and occupied Arab East Jerusalem. This is the natural outcome of what Begin intended and what was, was negotiated uh, at Oslo uh, in 1993 and in subsequent accords uh, in 1995 and afterwards. And the U.S. was sponsoring a peace process that never ends. But I think one of the worst things that you mentioned in the book is that this national uh, movement for liberation ended up being the police of the colonizers. Isn't that correct? Right. It's so right. the, the PA was policing. I want to move to the uh, deal of the century and Trump. Uh, how is it different than um, Oslo? And what, well, do you, what do you think is going to happen with all this news about annexing the rest of the West Bank? I think that uh, the deal of the century is and it's another joint declaration of war. It's not an Israeli declaration of war this time. It's an Israeli-American or an American-Israeli declaration of war. Because what it essentially argues is that Israel can do whatever it pleases. It can act as it wants. It can limit Palestinian rights as much as it wants, can get everything it wants in the occupied territories, uh, does not have to end its military occupation. The, 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 the misnomer for this is security control. Israel retains overall security control over the entirety of Palestine between the river and the sea. Um, and um, it, it signifies an American formal public approval uh, of Now, secretly, the United States has been uh, has been on board with these things, in my view, since 1978. I think that's what Camp David mm -hmm. and the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty and the bilateral letters between the United States and Israel at that time signify. That the United States is surreptitiously and quietly um, accommodating itself to whatever Israel wants. The Trump plan makes this public. And, and, and says openly, the United States supports exactly the, what Israel's maximalist objectives are. Um, and in that respect, um, it is a step. It, it, is, a, it is a major step. Um, what will come of annexation? I don't know. The, the, the parameters of, of the, specific, the specifics of that, um, we'll find out maybe in the next few weeks or maybe, maybe not, not until later. Um, but the Netanyahu government wants to take advantage of the fact that they have in the White House an administration uh, in Washington, an administration that is willing to go much farther in terms of openly endorsing Israeli objectives that the United States has surreptitiously accepted for decades. 
Um, and so, and they, and they, and they're su- supremely sensitive to American public opinion. They realize that at this point in time, it does not look as if President Trump is assured of a, a second term. And so they want to get what they can uh, while they can. I just want to read again the title of your book and remind our listeners that we're talking to Rashid Khalidi. The Hundred Years War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance. I want you to address the resistance. I don't think Jabotinsky uh, got what he wanted. I don't think the Palestinians have lost hope. And you talked about the intifadas, the first one and the second. I personally don't think that Palestinians will just disappear and be erased. What do you think? Do you think there would be another intifada? Could you address the really the resistance out of all these six wars by superpowers, different superpowers and international institutions? They're still there. They're still resist- resisting. Right. right. Well, I, I, earlier on in the book, I talk about different cases of settler colonialism. And obviously, Israel is a different case because, for one thing, um, most settler colonial projects are extensions of a mother country. So British settlement in North America was an extension of the actions of the British crown. French settlement in Canada or in Algeria was an extension of the, of the, of the French mother country, of the French state. Um, similarly, most, most settler colonial movements are, are linked to a mother country. Zionism is different in that respect. Um, Zionism does not represent the United States or Britain. It represents its, uh, itself. It represents a, 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 a movement of, of Jews who believe that they could not live safely in Europe because of its anti-Semitism uh, and that they had to uh, establish a, na- a national entity of their own in their ancestral homeland in what they call the land of Israel. Um, so it's different in that respect. And it's different in that it, does not, it, did not, it did not retain a connection to a mother country but rather look to the establishment of an independent entity, a state. Um, Herzl doesn't say um, in 19, 1897 when he writes a book, uh, the Jewish extension of British or, Jew- or German colonialism. He says a Jewish state. It is to be backed and supported by external powers, but it is to be its own independent entity. Uh, so that's another way in which Zionism is different. But I say that all settler colonial movements uh, ultimately uh, have to deal with the indigenous population. Some of them deal with them by eliminating them as much as possible. Now, there are still many million Native Americans in the United States. They still exist. They mm-hmm. still resist. They still retain some of their rights. Um, the same is true uh, with the First Nations in Canada. The same is true uh, with the Maori in New Zealand. And the same is true with the original populations of Australia. But in these four cases, these populations have been overwhelmed by... Uh, numbers that essentially drowned there, that uh, overwhelmed them. Uh, that didn't happen in other settler colonies. It didn't happen in South Africa. It didn't happen in Kenya or other places in East Africa where there was European settler colonialism. And it didn't happen in Algeria. And I'm arguing in this book that it hasn't happened in Palestine. Uh, the Zionist movement has been successful, as were other settler colonial movements, in setting up a new national entity. The United States is a settler colonial project which was successful. And in that respect, Zionism is also, or Canada, or New Zealand, or Australia, uh, similarly, were successful. In, in that respect, Zionism was successful, but it was not as successful as these other four in completely eliminating the native population, or subjugating, or, or taming it. Uh, the Palestinians are still there. They constitute a majority of the population, a bare 
majority of the population between the, the, the river and the sea, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, within territory entirely controlled by Israel, there are more uh, uh, Arabs than there are Jews. Um, and so this is the basis of what I, what I talk about when I talk about resistance, the fact that the Palestinians have stubbornly resisted uh, their expulsion, their elimination uh, as a people. Uh, and still have a national consciousness, still have, even though it's very weak, a national movement, it's weak today, um, and still are there uh, contesting uh, their own erasure. I just want to uh, read uh, um, a question that came to me on uh, the email. Uh, Professor Khalidi, kindly speak on how the radical Zionists have distorted the true meaning of anti-Semitism. We're running out of time, but if we have a minute or two, Professor. We do have a minute or two because I have another. Yeah, I have another. I know a minute if you want. Soon. Okay. Uh, could you repeat the question, please, someone? Yeah, uh, Art uh, wants to know from you uh, how the radical Zionists and radical Zionism have distorted the true meaning of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Um, one of the things that Israel has succeeded in doing is just normalizing itself, creating a nation-state, creating a new people. Um, and in this respect, it is both a settler colonial movement and a national movement. But that means that it's a nation-state like any other, and that it should be subject to uh, criticism like any other nation-state. It, 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 it proclaims itself as the nation-state of the Jewish people. Uh, but that does not mean that all Jews are implicated in its actions, or that a criticism of its actions is a criticism of Jews or is in, it, in itself anti-Semitic. Um, and one of the sinister tactics that supporters of Israel have adopted in order to stop people from criticizing the actions of the state of Israel is to say that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, or almost any criticism of Israel, or any criticism of Israel that particularly disturbs them is anti-Semitic. Um, and they have created a whole structure whereby they argue this or that or the other uh, is an illegitimate thing to say about Israel. Um, and the problem is Israel is just a state it, by their own, you know, by, by its own, uh, uh, by its own declaration. It's a state and therefore it should be subject to criticism like uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs or like uh, Turkey's suppression of, of freedoms or, or Russia's uh, uh, undemocratic behavior or whatever, no, Russia's occupation of Crimea, whatever it may be. Um, but the, criticizing those things when the culprit is Israel. Uh, is considered in many cases to be anti-Semitic. And this is a completely illegitimate approach. I mean, there is virulent anti-Semitism in the world. Most of it does not come from supporters of Palestinian rights. Most of it comes from white supremacist racists who are bigots and hate Jews because they're Jews. And the issue of Israel doesn't come up. I want to thank you, Professor Rashid Khalidi, for being on uh, True Talk. We were talking about the Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a fascinating book. And I want to thank him for being on True Talk. This is WMNF Tampa. And until...